Hey listeners, we have a very rare opening for an associate sound designer mixer here at DeFacto Sound. That's my sound design studio and the studio behind 20,000 Hertz. To learn more, visit jobs.defactosound.com. This application window closes on May 22nd. Now, onto the show. You're listening to 20,000 Hertz. I'm Dallas Taylor. Even those of us who know next to nothing about the music industry probably have some idea what mixing is. For instance, we all know mixing involves some sort of leveling, like how loud or quiet you want something to be. It also involves panning, whether you want an instrument or vocal part to be on the left or on the right or somewhere in the middle. And while you might use some effects while recording, a lot of other effects get added during the mixing phase. Maybe you want to add some reverb to the vocals, double track to give it a little more oomph, Oh, auto-tune those sweet vocals. While working on a song, a mixing engineer will make a ton of decisions like these, both big and small. But after being mixed, songs go through a whole other process before they get released. This stage is much harder to explain, and while it's definitely more subtle than mixing, it still ends up having a huge impact on the final sound. This process is called mastering, and even inside the music industry, it's considered something of a dark art. Something that only a small group of elite specialists know how to do. Mastering is the final step in making a commercial recording. That's Greg Milner. He's written about music and technology for publications like Slate, Wired, Rolling Stone, and the New York Times. It's taking the fully mixed recording and essentially making it absolutely pristine and correct to actually make it into something that people will listen to or buy. In the old days, before digital technology, the mastering engineer was the person who would literally make the physical master from what the recordings would be stamped from. Back in the day, that would have been a vinyl master, then cassette, then CD, and these days for digital files. This is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer. I have a podcast called The Mastering Show, and I run the production advice website. Ian says mastering isn't just about preparing music for public consumption. It's also an opportunity to get the music to sound the best that it can be. If it's a hard rock song, maybe you want to bring even more aggression and density into the sound. Or if it's a kind of gentle ballad, maybe you want a a lovely, soft, sweet, open sound. So it's very much a collaboration between you and the artist. So how is mastering different from mixing? Mixing is when you take all the individual tracks, the separate tracks that go into making a recording, and you mix them together. I like to visualize it as if you had a lot of jars of different colored sand and you poured them all into one big jar, and you wanted to control how much of each color was there. You might pour a little of one, more of another, into the big jar, But then the sand would be in that jar permanently. You couldn't actually extract the different colors. So that's the finished recording. That's mixing. And then mastering is maybe taking that jar of sand and doing little things to it, maybe moving stuff around here and there. But it's already mixed. You're not doing any mixing when you're mastering. You're working with a fully mixed recording. The other analogy is that mastering is like Photoshop for audio. So we've all taken photographs, you know, on a mobile phone or a camera, and then maybe you have one that you actually want to print out or put on the wall, and you look at it and actually you suddenly realize it's not quite as good as you thought it was. So maybe you want to tweak the color balance or enhance the contrast and the brightness, or maybe take out some red eye from a flash. Mastering is kind of the same thing for audio. So 
you might adjust the equalization, which is the overall amount of bass and treble and mid-range in the sound to get the tonal balance as good as it can be. You might want to adjust the balance of loudness and dynamics, which is kind of like adjusting the contrast and the brightness in a picture. You might want to take out clicks or thumps or hiss or buzz, and that's a bit like fixing red eye in a photograph. Ultimately, the mastering engineer is responsible for making an album sound cohesive, rather than just a random collection of songs. Often if you have a collection of recordings, maybe from a bunch of different studios and over quite a long length of time, it's a chance to balance those against each other, optimize the levels, the overall sound to get the best possible results. That includes deciding whether songs have gaps of silence between them or whether they flow naturally into each other. The final thing about mastering is to actually choose all of the starts and ends of the songs and put them in sequence and choose the gaps between them. And if you kind of widen out the Photoshop analogy a little bit, that's maybe like doing a presentation of your images, maybe laying them out in a photo book or even a little exhibition, you know, and saying, what frame am I going to put this in? How am I going to light this? Should this be large? Should it be small? All those kind of things. Let's compare the way a song sounds before and after it's been mastered. Here's a clip from the song Closer from Nine Inch Nails, before mastering. And here's the mastered version. Now they both sound great, but the mastered version just sounds fuller, clearer, and noticeably louder. It's the same song, just a little better. This shows how simple the effects of mastering can be. But mastering engineers don't just work on new music. It's also common for older albums to get remastered using newer technology. The advantage is, quite often you can go back to the original master tapes, you can make a clean transfer with the best possible equipment, and the remastering is also an opportunity to maybe correct some faults. For instance, Ian was once hired to restore and remaster a 1967 song called Hush by the British songwriter Chris Ife. You may know Deep Purple's version of this song from a year later. Unfortunately, the original master tape of the track had been lost, so all Ian had to work with was an old vinyl 45. As you'll hear, the record was in pretty bad shape, but through the magic of mastering, Ian managed to cut out the hiss and crackle. He also tweaked the EQ to make the song sound warmer and punchier. Here's the original. And here's Ian's remaster. Sometimes what was on the vinyl didn't sound as good as what was on the master tapes. And remastering is an opportunity to let people hear that. So that's the ideal. But the most controversial part of mastering has to do with loudness. Part of the process of mastering is to get a great balance between the dynamics of the music and the loudness. So the dynamics mean contrast in the music. So in an orchestral score, you have pianissimo for the quietest moments and fortissimo for the loudest. And the same thing applies to a rock song. For example, you want the introduction to be quiet and gentle maybe, and then the verse and the chorus to get louder. 
and you want the screaming guitar solo to really lift up in level, to have the right emotional impact. The natural difference between loud and soft sounds in music is referred to as dynamic range. The word loudness has an easier definition. It works just like your volume knob. Basically, a mastering engineer will change the overall loudness of each song so they can all play nicely together as an album, and you don't have to go reach for the volume knob on your sound system. In the 70s and 80s, when vinyl was king and recording was all analog, songs could only be as loud as the equipment would allow. The machines that physically cut music into vinyl records were especially fragile. In an analog system, you're really limited. So I think their mindset was a little bit different in the 70s and 80s. The mindset was that there is this limit beyond which we really can't go, so we have to be very, very careful about the way we master these recordings. As a result, music from this period tends to have a very high dynamic range. So there's a lot of contrast between the quietest parts of a song and the loudest. So many things back then had great dynamic range. You know, you listen to Abbey Road, for example, here comes the sun. If you really listen closely, you can just really hear the range. Here's the quietest part of Here Comes the Sun. And here's the loudest part. And just to be clear, we didn't adjust the volume at all between the two clips. That's the exact dynamic range from the album. But you know what? If you listen to a Black Sabbath song that came out about a year later, a lot of those actually have an even greater dynamic range. The song Black Sabbath from Black Sabbath's first album, Black Sabbath, shows off its impressive range within the first minute. At the start, it's extremely subdued, with nothing but the sounds of rainfall and church bells. Suddenly, the song erupts into a monstrous guitar riff. The energy peaks in the final seconds. If you grew up on... I always forget about that. Anyway, if you grew up on classic rock radio, then you've heard these songs many times but may have never realized how they were affected by mastering. This also applies to all genres of music, from hip-hop to classical. Nearly all music gets mastered before it's released. If you're a classic rock fan, you're probably sick of the song Stairway to Heaven, but there's no denying that the song is a powerful example of dynamic range. There's a reason I think that Stairway to Heaven is so popular. There's several reasons, but one thing is that it just has striking dynamic range. You can tell by how rich the drums often sound. I mean, drums and vocals are, I think, the things that benefit most from really strong dynamic range. From start to finish, that's a huge change. We're not just talking about an increase in energy, but an actual volume. A lot of the most beloved music from this era is just like this. Pink Floyd, Wish You Were Here is a kind of classic audiophile album with amazing dynamics. Just 
And then, of course, the Eagles, love them or hate them, those early Eagles records had really stunning dynamic range, especially when they were mastered onto the Greatest Hits album that became the biggest selling album of all time. There's just a spaciousness to those records. Like in the song Witchy Woman. It was really kind of an embarrassment of riches in a way, but you could almost pick and choose, and chances are you'd be listening to something with strong dynamic range. But starting in the late 80s, the spread of digital technology caused seismic shifts in the music industry. For one thing, songs could be made louder than ever. The new digital technology just allowed people to go even further, push the loudness higher and higher. One of the main ways they did this was through dynamic range compression. Essentially, this type of compression clamps down the loudest parts of a track so they're closer to the quietest parts. And once everything is evened out, you can boost the whole thing up. That way, the song stays closer to a maximum level the whole time, with less dynamic range from second to second or minute to minute. Of course, compressors weren't invented in the 80s. Compression has been something that's been around at least since the advent of multi-track recording. In fact, the reason the Beatles got Abbey Road to buy the first Fairchild compressor was to try and compete in terms of loudness with the music that was coming out of Motown. Like this song, You Can't Hurry Love by The Supremes. But while analog compression has been around for decades, digital compression was a whole new ballgame. With the advent of the compact disc, it became easier to employ very, very harsh dynamic range compression to make things sound louder. But there's also a limit in digital formats as well. There's this ceiling, basically, above which you can't go any higher because at the end of the day, there is a number that is the largest number you can store in the digital format, and there are no numbers larger than that. In other words, in a digital format, we can now make the volume max out right before its absolute maximum possible level. With old analog tech, it was very wishy-washy, so mastering engineers had to be much more conservative in their approach. I have a bit of a crazy analogy to explain this which is if you imagine that the music is a person on a trampoline, if they're in a big sports hall with high ceilings, they can bounce as high as they like and there's no restriction. But if you then think about raising the floor of the room up towards the ceiling, for a while, that's no problem. There's plenty of headroom for the person bouncing on the trampoline or for the music. But as you get closer and closer to the ceiling, the person bouncing is going to have to maybe start ducking their head or curling over and twisting and turning to avoid crashing into the ceiling. And exactly the same thing happens with music. For a while, you can lift the loudness up with no problems, but as you get towards that digital ceiling, the highest level that can be recorded, you have to start processing the audio, squashing the audio down into a smaller and smaller space to make it fit. You can do that quite gently, which can be beneficial and help things sound glued together and dense and powerful. But if you go too far, it can kind of dull things down and they start to sound lifeless and weak. And by the time you're hearing my voice right now, we've slowly compressed Ian's voice, my voice, and the music. So right now, what you're hearing is super compressed. Can you tell? And here it is, back with much lighter compression. Ah. 
So why was the music industry so obsessed with loudness? If hypercompression can degrade the sound quality of a song, why would an artist ever want it? And how did all of this affect the future of the music industry? That's coming up after the break. By the time I need to hire someone at my sound design studio, DeFacto Sound, I'm already slammed. That's why Indeed is super useful. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. Indeed takes all of the labor-intensive parts of searching and matching for candidates and does them for you. Indeed's smart matching engine will read through dozens of applications and cross-reference them against each other. Indeed will also send out messages to all the candidates that didn't make it with just one click. It's not just about saving time, it's also about quality. According to their own data, 93% of employers say that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. And we've got a great deal for you. Right now, our listeners can get a $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com Hertz. That's Indeed.com H-E-R-T-Z. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode's mystery sound is sponsored by Sonos, the wireless sound system for brilliant sound anywhere. Here it is. And again. If you think you know that sound, tell us at the web address mystery.20k.org. And if you get it right, you'll be entered to win a super soft 20,000 Hertz t-shirt. And thanks again to Sonos. Shop the latest speakers and soundbars at Sonos.com now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In the analog era of recorded music, songs were mastered to be very dynamic. This meant that there could be a lot of contrast between the quietest parts of a song and the loudest. But once digital technology hit the scene, mastering engineers could make songs louder than ever before. To do so, they used extreme compression, which boosts the volume but reduces the dynamic range. So why were artists so eager to make their songs louder? If I play you two identical pieces of audio, but one of them is just a fraction louder than the other, they will actually sound different to you, even though they're the same and the only difference is the loudness. So the louder one might sound like it's got a little bit more bass, a little bit more treble. And on the whole, people will tend to say that they think the louder one sounds better. So let's try it. Here's a clip from the song Juice by Lizzo. Which one sounds better to you? This? Ain't my fault that I'm out here getting 
or this. You probably picked the second one. And if so, you're not alone. Even though the audio is identical. Their initial reaction is often going to be, oh, that loud one sounds better. It's just like fuller. It's you know coming out of the speakers. And that means that if you're producing any kind of audio where you want to catch people's attention, there's a benefit to being loud. And music isn't the only place where some people think louder is better. There's one industry in particular where getting people's attention matters more than anything else. Hi, Billy Mays here for the Grip and Lift. When you need some extra help for those outdoor chores, it's a must-have. That's right, commercials. And just like music, the volume of commercials used to be limited by analog equipment. That's why I switched to Bounty paper towels. They absorb faster than any other leading brand. Bounty's the quicker picker-upper. But as technology improved, commercials kept getting louder and louder. The Eventually, things got so bad that Congress had to be the noise police for the entire country. In 2010, Congress passed the CALM Act, which stands for Commercial Advertisement Loudness Mitigation. Under this law, ads are prohibited from being broadcast louder than TV shows. It basically works by measuring loudness over time. TV shows are longer, so they have more time for peaks and valleys in the volume. But TV ads are often just a block of maximum loudness for 30 seconds, so they can still feel a lot louder, even though they're technically the same. It's still at the same level, it's just that it's hitting those maximum peaks much more often than this TV show before it. We've actually seen a similar thing happen in music, where people have been using loudness to try and get music to stand out as well. On record originally, and on the radio, and these days on CD and online. And it's called the loudness war because it's basically a sonic arms race because people know that if they can be a little bit louder, maybe they'll stand out a little bit more or sound a little bit better. Imagine a jukebox in a crowded bar that's set at some kind of master volume. If the song that comes before yours has been mastered to sound louder, naturally that's where the volume is going to be set. When your song comes on, it's going to sound kind of weak and wimpy by comparison. Maybe you won't even be able to hear it over the crowd noise. So there was this thought that music really had to just jump out of the speakers and really attack you. What's the story, Morning Glory by Oasis? Really, really, really aggressively compressed. But on the other hand, by modern standards, Nevermind by Nirvana is quite a quiet record. But nobody ever complained that it didn't sound loud enough because they just crank it up. And that's the thing. We have plenty of volume to go <laughs> to go around. All we need to do with records, if they're not as loud as we want, is just turn up the volume. Still, Nirvana's Nevermind ended up being something of an outlier, as more and more artists opted for a loud, ultra-compressed sound. While this was all going on, the same thing was happening in radio. Radio stations were facing the same sort of problems. You want your radio station to pop out of the speakers so someone listening to it, if they turned it on, on the dial, are less likely to go to someone else's. So you had this loudness war in radio and this loudness war in recordings, and it just combined to be this really crazy morass of loudness and compression. Over time, the loudness levels just creep up and creep up and creep up. 
By the end of the millennium, the loudness war had spiraled out of control. Music was being hyper-compressed by mastering engineers and again by radio broadcasters. Just when it seemed like things couldn't get any worse, MP3s appeared and music got compressed even more. This time it was through a process called data compression. Unlike dynamic range compression, which is applied while mixing and mastering, data compression happens when a recording is encoded from one digital format to another. Like when you used to rip a CD onto a computer. So let's rewind to, say, 2001. Show me the meaning. And you want to get the music from your new Backstreet Boys CD onto your MP3 player. Or most likely you want to share it to Napster. Of course, you shouldn't be uploading other people's music to the internet. But hey, it's 2001 and you don't know that yet. So you open a program that turns CDs into MP3s. But you probably didn't pay attention to the settings. And something most of us don't realize is when you turn those CDs into a bunch of MP3 files, you're throwing away a huge amount of the actual sound of the music through data compression. When MP3s came on the scene, they figured out that you could apply algorithms that would take out a huge amount of the music. And I'm talking like a gigantic amount of the music because at any given moment, there are certain frequencies that our ears are not going to hear because they're being overwhelmed by other frequencies. So I actually find it pretty impressive that lossy data compression works at all. When you think that often as much as 90% of the original information is being discarded in order to get the file size down, it's amazing that they sound as good as they do. At higher quality settings, most people probably won't notice any loss in sound quality. But when you compress the file down enough, the sound really starts to suffer. So what you tend to get back has similar tonal balance to the original. You can hear all of the instruments. It still sounds like the same piece of music. But when you do a direct comparison, you'll often find, if you're listening in stereo, what used to sound wide and spacious and lush collapses down into the center of the stereo image. You get much less of that sense of space and depth and everything sounds a bit claustrophobic, a bit constrained. And the other thing that you hear as the data rate goes down is extra mulch, to use a technical term. It's just this kind of squelchy, scrunchy, slightly distorted quality to the sound. We've actually been gradually compressing the data of this audio over the last minute or so. Here's what it sounded like when we started. And here's where we ended up. It's one of those things that if you don't know what's happening, you can't really pick it out. But when you compare the two, you can definitely hear a difference. It probably won't leap out at you, but once you start to hear it, it's quite distinctive. For me, it just makes things sound duller, less interesting, less involving. I'm less likely to be sucked into a recording and lose myself in it. It's much less likely to give me goosebumps. Data compression in audio is still a big issue today. When you stream music or listen to a podcast, the audio file gets encoded down pretty heavily to save bandwidth. This does make sense up to a point, since higher quality files do take longer to buffer. And of course, a lot of us pay by the gigabyte for our mobile data. On the other hand though, internet speeds are faster than ever these days, and unlimited data plans are pretty common. You can stream 4K video from YouTube and Netflix, so why hasn't audio caught up? Unfortunately, audio still gets treated like a second-class citizen compared to video, and the bar for what's considered acceptable is significantly lower. 
Between overcompression at the mastering stage and overcompression at the encoding stage, most of us have to put up with subpar sound all the time, whether we realize it or not. It's quite interesting because it's such a subtle effect. If you didn't do the comparison, you might never notice it. But I think it has quite a profound effect on the way that we feel when we listen to the music and on whether we're likely to want to keep on listening or switch it off and do something else instead. Here at 20,000 Hertz, we care about sound quality. And we think you do too. If you want to make the music you hear sound a little better, go into the settings of your music streaming app and turn on high quality streaming. It's not going to fix all of the issues we've talked about, but it does make a difference. At this point, things seem pretty dire, but there are some signs of hope. While music has been getting pummeled by the loudness war, some artists and mastering engineers have been fighting to keep dynamics alive. And while streaming services don't have a great track record when it comes to sound quality, they might end up being the biggest game changers in the loudness war. How? We'll find out next time. Twenty Thousand Hertz is produced out of the studios of DeFacto Sound, a sound design team dedicated to making television, film, and games sound incredible. Go listen at defactosound.com. This episode was written and produced by Casey Emerling and me, Dallas Taylor, with help from Sam Sneebly. It was sound edited by Soren Bejan. It was sound designed and mixed by Nick Spradlin. Special thanks to our guests, Greg Milner and Ian Shepard. If you want to dive deeper into these subjects, be sure to check out Ian's podcast. It's called The Mastering Show. His website is called Production Advice. And check out Greg Milner's book, Perfecting Sound Forever. You'll find links in the show description. The background music in this episode came from our friends at Musicbed. Visit musicbed.com to explore their huge library of awesome music. What album captivates you with its amazing sound? I'd love to know. You can get in touch with me and the rest of the 20K team on Twitter, Facebook, or through our website, 20k.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to tell your friends and family. And lastly, be sure to support the artists you love by buying their music, and preferably in high quality. Thanks for listening. 